The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. I invite you to turn with me in your Bible to Philippians chapter 3. Bible and church history experts have concluded that no spiritual renewal in history, not in the Old Testament, the New Testament, the early church, the Reformation era, nor the Great Awakenings, none of these great outpourings of the Holy Spirit came without the careful and prayerful ministry of teaching the biblical truths of justification and sanctification, where these two vital components of the gospel message are clearly presented, God's people flourish. However, where they are watered down, neglected, and misunderstood, the church lies dead, apathetic, with spiritual lethargy. Justification, when taught without sanctification leads to a cheap grace mentality, neglecting holiness. Whereas when sanctification is taught and emphasized without an emphasis on justification, it oftentimes leads to an unhealthy legalistic performance mentality. Just to make ourselves clear, justification is the teaching where that God, the, the act of God declaring you and I to be righteous in the precious blood of Jesus Christ appropriated by faith. This is completely the work of God on our behalf. Sanctification is the act of God's free grace, whereby he molds us, where we become genuinely holy in heart, and conduct as we participate with the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We are partners. We join God in the effort to become like Christ. Another wonderful text of the Apostle Paul this morning. We see how he follows after a previous passage where he gives an impassioned repudiation of his former life as a Pharisee whereby he used to boast in his own righteousness. He declares that all rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ and him crucified. In our passage this morning, Paul raises an important question about perfectionism. We no doubt have many perfectionists in our midst this morning. We're perfectionists with our work, our appearance, with our spiritual lives. We need a message of God's grace, reminding us how much we need Christ in order to become what God wants us to be. There are also others who could care less about being perfect and perhaps need a charge and a challenge to consider seriously what it means to strive after Christ in all holiness. May God's word meet each of us where we are at today. Please follow as I read Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. 
not that I have already obtained all this, or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. This is the inspired and inerrant word of God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this charge, this challenging passage from your word to remind us that we are far from perfect, yet you call us to pursue it out of obedience and out of the joy that Christ is laid out before us. We ask, O Lord, that you would send your spirit upon us. Give us illumination and understanding. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. A few weeks ago, my oldest son asked me, Dad, what is a perfect game in baseball? I believe he heard this reference while watching a Phillies game that had referred to the most recent perfect game pitched by Roy Halliday of the Phillies. Now, I had an answer for him, but I had to look it up online just to make sure I had all the details correct. A perfect game. When a pitcher throws a perfect game, it's when none of the opposing team's batters reach base for any reason at all. So the pitcher has to, he cannot give up any runs, which is called a shutout. He cannot give up any hits, which is called a no-hitter. Nor can he give up any walks or commit any errors, neither he nor his teammates. It is one of the rarest feats in all of baseball. In fact, in over 130 years of Major League Baseball, there have only been 20 perfect games. Amazingly, two of them have come in this season, something that has never happened before in the modern times. You have to go back to 1880 to see two perfect games, five days apart. And the perfect game was not thrown again for 24 years. Pitchers dream of the rare and coveted perfect game. Many come very close, only to be spoiled by the final batter on the opposing team. Or perhaps an error committed by one of your teammates. Perfection in any sport is something that very few champions achieve. Occasionally, something very special comes along, like Michael Phelps, eight gold medals at the 2008 Beijing Olympics. 
1972 Miami Dolphins, the only team in NFL history to go perfectly through the season undefeated. We can refer to the UCLA basketball teams of the 1960s and 70s. Tennis stars Rod Laver and Steffi Graf, a few of those in tennis who were managed to win all four Grand Slam tennis events in a single season. We can appeal to other acts of greatness that draw near on perfection. All of these athletes were perfect for a day, for a season, according to the standards of their given sport. And amazing as their accomplishments were, they failed to measure up to God's standards of holiness. You and I fall far short of perfection in our spiritual and moral lives. Jesus is the only grand champion who is perfect, not just for a day or for a season, but for an entire life. And Jesus, our Savior, compels us to strive in following after him and his likeness. The Bible describes the Christian life as a race, this long and grueling effort whereby we are called to not only finish, but to finish well. Well, here the Apostle Paul, the Michael Jordan, Christian missionary church planters, admits in verse 12 that he is not perfect. Here's a man who, as a young, zealous Pharisee, could say, as for legalistic righteousness, he was faultless. He was a straight A, 100-grade, moralistic Pharisee, loved by his teachers, hated by his fellow classmates, until Paul encountered the risen Christ, the one who taught his followers that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. The Pharisees were the super-religious, moral people of that day. People wanted to be like them. The disciples wondered, how could our righteousness surpass the Pharisees? Well, Paul's entire framework is altered as he is confronted with the gospel message. The error of the Pharisees is exposed by which they would accommodate God's law by bringing it downward to make it attainable in a kind of superficial way. This is what Paul discovered and taught of a righteousness not of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. That is justification in a nutshell. But in our passage, Paul goes on to talk about sanctification and this new kind of perfection to press on towards the goal as if to win the prize which God has called us heavenward in Christ. Why does Paul strive so? Is he just an overly competitive man? Is he a man possessed? Well, yes. He is possessed with an all-consuming passion to know Christ and to be like him. Jesus calls his followers to live not for self, 
but to run the race, to join him in this glorious, glorious race of perfection. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Jesus did not die for us to merely save us, that we might live for ourselves and keep our fire insurance policy for all eternity. He saved us to be holy. We are saved by grace, through faith, to do the good works that God prepared in advance for us to do. He intends to make something glorious out of each and every one of our lives. How do you respond? Some of us salivate with great excitement. We love a challenge. Competition, bring it on, you say. Raise the bar. Let me struggle with it. Perhaps with some misguided zeal. But most of us, I would think, loathe such a strong exhortation. Loathe it like canker sores. It strikes us as legalistic, demanding. Well, to address some of these responses, I want to consider this morning, what are the obstacles that impede our progress down the road of holiness? And how how do we overcome them? Many, no doubt, are frightened. Frightened to trust God with their sanctification. It's painful. We've had bad experiences of going through trials in the past. I have been beat up. I'm tired of my many failings. It's just too hard and it's just too painful. I, I'm just not sure I can grow and move on. Paul helps us by giving us focus in verse 13 when he says, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. Referring to those things that we should have left behind. I believe are those dead weights, those blunders and those anchors of the soul that drag us and weigh us down. Hebrews 12.1 exhorts us, let us throw off everything that hinders And the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. Racers of all stripes shed unnecessary weight. What were some of the weighty things for the Apostle Paul? He was a pure persecutor of God's church. He approved the execution of godly men. Like King David, he knew something about regret. Our lives are full of regrets. They overwhelm us. They burden us. We try to hide them and try to hide them from others. We numb the pain over our regrets, only to create more of them. We make excuses for ourselves. We regret the things that we have said. We regret the things that we haven't said. We regret the things we have done and haven't done with our children, with our finances, in our marriages. We're afraid to face them. What if other people knew about our regrets? At the heart of our regrets is a lot of pride. Lust and control. It's a matter of our own self-salvation project. 
And when these things lie dormant and undealt with, they emerge like thorns in anger, in control, in a judgmental spirit. I believe that these things that are better left behind contribute to a great spiritual insecurity. They blind us from believing the truth of the gospel. They create this cloud around us whereby we see God as somehow distant, unconcerned, harsh, like a taskmaster. And when we lack grounding, and what the Bible teaches about our justification and our sanctification, we are left with grave insecurity. If you don't know where you stand with God, like when you don't know where you stand with a parent, a teacher, or a coach, you are left gravely insecure. A dog who has a harsh and capricious master doesn't know how to obey and please his master. And so when we have such a view of God, we are not quite sure what to do with ourselves. I believe it's this kind of great spiritual insecurity that is one of the primary causes of chronic problems throughout the church worldwide. A judgmental attitude towards outsiders. A critical spirit within towards the leadership. Apathy. Immorality. Weakness in devotional life. Poor service to others. A wise man once told me, do not expect healthy responses from unhealthy people. Doctors know this. But sure, believers know this about themselves and others. Your sanctification can go no further than to the extent that you are spiritually secure in Christ. Doubting your salvation, or whether it's questioning God's approval of you, or any other type of obsessive, compulsive thought and behavior, must be addressed with a deep grounding in your justification and your sanctification. Paul says, forgetting what is behind. That means that we must accept what the Bible says, that Jesus Christ has forgiven you. He has secured God's forgiveness for you of everything that you have committed in word, thought, and deed. This is your justification. And to apply it to ourselves, if you're like me, oftentimes that means not only embracing that forgiveness, but forgiving myself. Learning to let go, to stop the vicious cycle of regret. Rather than beating ourselves up repeatedly, we're called to be rejoicing in Christ who has set us free from our guilt and our shame. Jesus can rescue us from our ruthless patterns of unhealth. And he uses the means of his word, preaching and teaching, and healthy relationships in the body of Christ who repeatedly point us back to the Savior Straining forward means that we embrace our status as new creatures in Christ, holy in God's sight, empowered to live lives that are pleasing to him, 
This is our sanctification. This is not a performance treadmill whereby we are earning God's acceptance. Some of you had fathers who were impossible to please. Our God is a father who is very easily pleased, though never fully satisfied until we are complete in Christ. Our standing with God does not change with the shifting of the wind. Our standing with God does not rise and fall with the mercury in the thermometer. Our approval with God cannot increase or decrease by anything that we do. Rather, yours is the freedom to be all that God created you to be, free of guilt, of fear, no longer condemned and enabled by the Holy Spirit to be all that you were intended to be. As a Christian, we are to be up or getting up and pressing on forward, following Christ. Paul rebukes the naysayers against his teaching in verse 15, when he says that all of us who are mature, those who are grounded in a healthy relationship with God, should accept this teaching. But if any of you disagree, that too God will make clear to you. And then in verse 16, he offers this summary. Let us only live up to what we have already attained. Be who you are. The imperative follows the indicative. We see this all throughout Scripture. God only gave the law to Israel after he had first redeemed them from Egypt. That as a ransomed people, we are called to obey and respond only after God has initiated the relationship with us. God has initiated his covenant. He has promised to maintain his covenant, even binding himself to fulfill the obligations, the consequences of our failure to keep the covenant, which is why Christ was sent to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. In the New Testament, every call and command to be holy, to love others, to serve people, comes in context of teaching that tells us that we are holy. You are loved. Your God has served you. So now be free. Go and serve others in his name. Only to the extent that our relationship with God is secure do we have the confidence to grow and mature in the sanctified life? Any great leader or coach knows that he must inspire his followers with vision to see the goal at the end of the competition. An Olympic athlete is driven by the constant reminders from the coach of what it takes to maintain his competition and performance to all the way to the medal stand. That vision of glory sustains the athlete through the pain and the toil of training. A wise coach knows how to rally his players to play like a team. Sadly, in 2004, the USA basketball team, though the most talented group of players on the planet, failed to have a mission strong enough 
to subdue their selfishness and their egos. Two years ago, Coach K remedied the situation and rallied our star players to restore the glory of the United States basketball tradition. Coaching and mentoring are very important, not just in athletics, not just in music, but in the spiritual life as well. You and I need vision and focus. Well, Paul offers just that in verse 20. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven. You and I in Christ belong to a place where there is no tainting of sin, where there is life and joy uninterrupted. We have a home. Our home is a place where we behold the beauty and the goodness of God, have unbroken fellowship with the saints, where our souls be filled to the brim of delight. And with this understanding in mind, we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. A child traveling with his parents to visit his favorite cousin repeatedly asks, when will we get there? Well, you and I live in but a brief moment of time, whereby we are waiting, anticipating like a bride, her bridegroom, for the coming of Christ to come and take us away. So do not get too used to this world. Do not tolerate your sin as just the way it goes. Do not protect yourself by somehow lowering your expectations of glory. I don't think that we can overestimate how good heaven will be. Something better than all we ask or imagine is coming. We wait by the, power that, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control. Jesus will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious body. Every painful affliction, arthritis, shingles, the rehabilitation process, every element of bodily decay will be over. All of our miseries with mental health, anxiety, and depression, though relieved somewhat temporarily in this life, will be gone forever. All of our frustration with the ongoing battle with sin, your doubts and regrets, your fears of the future will all be brought to finality. The one who created the world by the word of his power, who rose again from the grave, defeating death, knows how to transform your lowly body into a glorious body like his own. The caterpillar does not become a butterfly without much effort and struggle. Likewise, no one can enter the kingdom of God without pain and loss. Yet, as Paul says elsewhere, our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. It is worth it. We will be made perfect. We who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. 
He is coming. The one who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Trust him in his glorious sanctification project with you as we await perfection to come. We have a family in our church who will be traveling soon to China to adopt a little girl. I reckon that this little girl who's old enough to understand her circumstances can't possibly imagine how much her life will change for the good. Now she is an orphan, unwanted. Soon she will be a daughter and a sister, well-loved and desired by her new family. Now she lives in a world confined and dull, dull with little contact with the outside world. She sees things only in part, but she knows there's a family coming from a foreign land who wants to claim her and take her back home with her. She may be fearful and yet deeply desirous and eager to meet this family. It may be awkward at first, but She's sure to be welcomed and loved and embraced as part of the family. Friends, you and I are adopted. We have a loving, heavenly Father who desires each and every one of us. All too often, we live like orphans in our doubts, in our fears, in our despair. And yet now we are waiting. We are but waiting for the Father to send our elder brother here to claim us and bring us back home to be with him. Until that time, it is our privilege. In eager anticipation, telling others about how wonderful our Father is. Friends, this is what sanctification is all about. Enjoying God. Rejoicing in all that he is. Being made whole again gladly living to bring him pleasure and to tell others about how good and amazing he is. May it be so until he returns. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your sure and precious promise. We thank you that the Lord Jesus will return to claim us, that we are your well-loved sons and daughters. Give us this vision and this hope as we run this race, as we pursue the goal, the perfection of being made in the very likeness of Christ. Sustain us, we ask, in his precious name. Amen.